Welcome to episode four of Multiple Calls. I'm Scott Hewlett. So before I introduce Chris to you and talk about his episode, I just want to say a few things about something really important that happened this week. So between recording with Chris and doing this intro, uh, my crew and our department lost someone uh, incredibly important to us all. Uh, Dave Thewlis passed away. Um, and I still can't believe that that's a sentence that I have to use in this life. Um, to say he was well-loved um, and respected on an apartment is a severe understatement. So I appreciate everyone's patience and understanding, um, you know, waiting for the next episode to be put up. Um, but uh, obviously, my um, head wasn't in the right space, and um, I don't think anyone else's was either. Um, we're going to be processing this for, well, forever, right? Uh, for a really long time. I definitely want to do an episode where um, I gather up some stories about Dave um, and put them together properly, and uh, hopefully I can bring that to you um, when I'm ready to do so. I'm going to take some time and gather it up uh, and do it right. Um, so I can't tell you when that's going to happen, but it'll happen in due time when it's supposed to. Okay, so now I'm kind of stuck with trying to find a good way to transition from that into talking about the next episode, <laughs> uh, and there doesn't seem to be a really good way to do that, uh, so we'll just get into it. Chris and I uh, actually begin his talk with his story of being on the receiving end of life-saving care of firefighters and paramedics, and his resulting uh, post-traumatic growth, which is a term he uses and I really love. Uh, we talk a lot about uh, the destruction that trauma causes, um, but there can also be growth, uh, and it's really cool to hear him describe it. So Chris's journey into the service is really interesting. It's a, it's a really interesting contrast to Jeff Clayton, actually, who I talked with in episode three, and coincidentally, uh, their paths have crossed completely, and they work on the same crew. So they share equally in the passion for learning and for the service, but Chris came to the job after trying his hand at a few different things. Um, and even once he entered the service, he ran the gamut of roles before finding himself uh, riding backwards. He's got a voracious appetite for learning and experiences and follows his heart and mind in a balanced way that I really respect. Time and time again, he just bravely says yes and, uh, and has taken something from every path. I'm really happy that you're going to get to know him. Here's me and Chris Vandenberg. Enjoy. Chris. Hi. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm, it's, uh, I'm grateful to be here. Awesome. I find it amazing that you've included me in with uh, such a roster of incredible people. Yeah. I certainly feel like the junior guy coming on this podcast, but well, I think I think you're pretty incredible. So, <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so as I prep for our talk, I remember distinctly uh, sitting in when you talk with the recruit class about your real first interaction with firefighters. Yeah. And it was impactful for me. Uh, for a lot of reasons, um, but it also stood out because it was unique because you were on the receiving end of the fire service. Can you walk me through that moment again? Yeah, it was, um, it's a funny thing, you know, and I, I didn't realize how much it would affect my thinking later on in life, but um, when I was 16 years old, I was working at my high school um, doing sound and lights and stuff, stage crew kind of work, and we were working at the Christmas concert. And I went uh, out back at the time, I, I, I smoked, and uh, I went out back to have a cigarette. 
And next thing you know, some snowballs were being thrown at me and then I got into a fight and that fight ended up being where somebody pulled, um, you know, a yellow utility knife, you know, razor sharp knife on me and basically hacked me up. And, you know, that night, um, you know, the ambulance were there, but the, certainly the firefighters were the, the ones that got there right off the bat and, um, they basically saved my life. And if it wasn't for them and if it wasn't for the medics thinking properly and the way the system was set up, I, I don't know that I would be sitting here today. Hmm. And, you know, more, more so than just what had occurred and, and the actual actions, the operations on scene there, what impacted me more was months later, you know, I spent, you know, a number of uh, days in the ICU and then number of months in bed and then finally kind of got back to school and was walking with a cane was going down walking down the street and a fire truck pulls up beside me and the crew hops out and the captain hops out and they stopped and they were just like hey how are you are you okay you're that kid right you know and did uh, you recognize them no well I didn't right you know, I didn't have any idea mm. you know that they recognized me and they stopped and and uh, you know I think more than anything, I think that really set a tone for me in my mind of what it meant to be a firefighter. You know, that compassion and, you know, that community mindedness, you know, these guys, you know, knew who I was. And it's, and this has happened in Toronto. This isn't, you know, some small town or anything like that. This was in a big city. And these guys, they knew their first run area and they recognized one of their patients walking down the street sort of thing. And, you know, for me, I think that set a tone, you know, as to what it meant mm. to be a firefighter. You know, that compassion and stuff. So and that certainly played out later on in my life, I think. But it didn't make me want to be a firefighter at the time or anything, you know. I, yeah, it was an instant career decider. No, you know, I had, if anything, you know, firefighter, firefighting came to me as a surprise later on in life. You know, I had zero thoughts of becoming a firefighter without one of these guys that was, you know, I'm going to be a firefighter, you know, mm -hmm. as soon as I can. You know, it happened to me after I'd already tried a couple of other careers and other things and, mm. You know, it just sort of happened by circumstance that I ended up getting into it. It'd be a really interesting stat to know how many first responders have actually ever been a citizen in need, right? Yeah. So it's such an interesting perspective, right? Because during a lot of our training, we use each other as victims sometimes. Yeah. Uh, partially because it's more realistic to use real people, but also because it offers this experience of what it feels like to be on the receiving end of the care. Yeah. Um, and maybe that makes us more aware of how we would speak and handle our patients so did that incident also affect how you treated others before becoming a firefighter and and now? You know, I don't I don't necessarily know that it did. Um, yeah, I don't I don't I don't know that it changed you know how I was with people or anything like that. I think more than anything, it just really resonated with me. You know who these people were, and you know they really were sort of you know heroes in my life. You know they'd saved my life. Right. So, mm. you know, the firefighters were my heroes and I, I'm grateful and honored to be one of them now, mm. you know, but that, I don't think it immediately changed anything for me. For me, reflecting on it, um, the second time now that I knew we'd be talking about it, um, I was wondering, uh, I think it speaks a lot to who you are as a person, um, because it seems to me you came away from this experience with more empathy for others and more respect for the people that help you than anger and distrust towards people that, because you, it, it was this un, you know, th there wasn't, you didn't draw on the attack. It just happened. Yeah, it was And you, you, you could have a lot of anger and distrust for people in general and really see the world a different way and be an angry person. And I think it speaks to who you are because that, that didn't, it doesn't seem like that crossed your mind. 
No, it's interesting. And uh, you, you read a lot about post-traumatic stress and stuff, but there's something called post-traumatic growth as well. And, you know, Google it. You'll find, you'll find out some information about it. And I, th- I believe now, knowing what I know, that that's sort of what I went through. You know, that this, this incident caused me to reflect at a very young age, you know, about life in general and, and bigger picture things. And, you know, I think it did certainly cause me to go down a path of, you know, more love, more compassion in my world. Mm. And, you know, that being said, you know, I think we're also a product of just who we are. You know, some people are just more empathic than others and, Mm. you know, maybe how you're raised and certainly my family raised me to be that way. And so maybe it was already there, but, um, definitely that incident certainly would have brought out a little bit more out of it, out of me as well. Yeah. It's that fork in the road that if it was anybody else, like each person has an experience and can get something completely different out of it. Yeah. Yeah. And another dimension and, you know. <laughs> we can go there, right? <laughs> I could be some cringy old grumpy guy, you know, with right. an alcohol problem or something. Right, 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 Who knows, right, right. right. So this wasn't an instant career decider for you, uh, but you always had the goal of being self-employed, right? So why why that? Why was that always in the back of your mind? You know, it's funny. You put that in the notes there. I was, I was trying to think about why I wanted to be self-employed. And I really don't know what it is. Like I, But it was something that I wanted to do from when I was young. Like I started my first business when I was a teenager. Hmm. You know, I was selling t-shirts at raves. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like crazy, crazy as that is. And, you know, before, you know, I had a bunch of different little businesses and stuff like that. And it was just, for some reason, that's what I wanted to do. You know, like I wasn't, I wasn't interested in going through school all the way I am now, you know, that that's changed. But at the time when I was younger, I didn't want to go to university or anything, you mm-hmm. know, my parents sort of had me going down that path, but that's right. not what I wanted to do. I, I can do this on my own. Yeah. And that, I think that's it. Maybe it's just stubbornness, pure stubbornness. Right. So like, you know <laughs> what? Hey man, I just, you know, I'm going to do my own thing. Don't worry about me. I'm going to be fine. Right. And mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I didn't have any specific thing that I wanted to be entrepreneurial about, but you know, that's sort of what I went to and that's, then that's definitely the path I went down. You know, I started, you know, doing a lot of sort of commission sales type jobs. I worked in the car industry for a while. I was, you know, finance guy in the car industry. And then I opened up an internet cafe at a gift shop. You know, I had a second internet cafe. I had, you know. In BC, right? Yeah. And I I had a company that, you know, did maintenance for condominium companies and stuff like that. So I had, you know, I was doing all kinds of stuff. You know what I mean? But it was really... you know, the world revolved around money, right? And making money and expanding your business and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. I think when I finally pulled the plug, I had 13 employees at that time. Um, and it was the fire service that made me change it and right. the thought of joining the service. Right. So being being an entrepreneur, though, it's like, let's hang there for a minute. And with the Internet Cafe, did you get involved in the community or is there other yeah, aspects of it? Yeah, I think I kind of hit that point where, you know, I, I felt like I'd achieved what I was you know, trying to do, which was become self-employed, you know, and, and make a living at it. And, and, you know, and then I started feeling, okay, well, you know, now it's time, now that I've achieved my goal, it's time to sort of give back to my community. And mm-hmm. so I started getting involved and I got heavily involved in the, in the chamber of commerce, um, you know, at West in the town that I was in and, uh, and then just in general, you know, in the community and community events and things like that and helping out with, you know, whatever community cleanups or, you know, getting involved. And then I got involved with the fire department that way, you know, and that was my intent with the fire department was just like, okay, well, this is my opportunity to volunteer and give back to my community. Right. You know, and I was in a unique position where being self-employed, I could drop, 
you know, anything I wanted at any time and go run, go run a call, Mm -hmm. you know, or go to practice or do whatever, because there were employees there that could handle the business. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I didn't have to ask my boss to go. Right. Right. But you weren't, you weren't chasing, really chasing the idea of joining the fire service. Like how did you get introduced and drawn in? Yeah, not at all. It was funny because, you know, through the chamber of commerce, you know, the deputy fire chief actually was sort of uh, involved with the chamber of commerce a little bit. And, you know, and then our wives started working together and, and then we started hanging out all the time and, and then, uh, playing st- shinny hockey. Yeah. And, and then, yeah. And then started playing shinny hockey and it was all fire guys. <laughs> I was playing shinny hockey. They would always kick my butt. You know, I'm not, I'm not a great hockey player, but I was out there on the ice having fun. He said, you know, why don't you come practice? Right. Like, why don't you, you know, we could use a guy like you that's able to respond to calls at any time. And, mm-hmm. you know, you're here for the long term and et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I went to practice that first night and, you know, it was, it was a funny experience walking, walking in there and being in the training room and then having this lesson taught to me. And I, I suddenly realized, wow, you know, there's stuff to learn here, you know? And I think when you're working, you're in the working world, you don't necessarily realize how little you're learning, you know, like it's a lot of, it. it's just, you're on re- repeat, mm-hmm. right. You know, with my internet cafe, it was sort of like, okay, you know, charge the next customer, charge the next customer, charge. The next. Once it's all set up and running. Yeah. Make the coffee, you know, like. Right order, order the inventory, you know, like it's very much a repetitive thing or any other kind of job that I had was very repetitive where, you know, fire service really is about learning. When it gets right down to it, you know, it's about constantly growing and never stopping until that day you retire. Right. You know, so for that, for me, it was just like, this is awesome, right? I get to use my brain again. You know? <laughs> so I've heard you say a few times that you're the longest recruit ever, yeah. right? So let's walk through that story. So you get invited to this first practice. How was your first training night? Oh, it was amazing. It was, you know, it was fire behavior 101 and, you know, getting into, you know, chemistry and states of matter and all that kind of stuff, right? So I was like, really? The firefighters need to know this stuff? <laughs> they need to be smart too, not just, you know, muscle. And mm. I was, you know, so for me, that was amazing. But more, more than anything else, like that was cool and learning was cool. But the camaraderie and the brotherhood, that for me was wow these guys know each other in and out they're ribbing each other hard they're you know they're they're poking hot buttons to see if someone will crack and you know but they're having a good time doing it you recognized it right away immediately first practice it was just like okay this is you know this is a cool group to be a part of you Mm -hmm. know like these people are having fun they're taking it seriously and there there was certainly there was a level of professionalism that was there as well this wasn't just all jokes right there was mm-hmm. you know people were not ignoring the lesson that was in front of them and they were asking you know questions to get at the topic and make sure that they understood what they were doing and so right. you know they had this this thing where these people are really learning and they're having a great time and mm-hmm. I was like man this is you know this is way more interesting than what I'm doing so you started to really like juxtapose the work right this uh, the, the meaning and nobility of the profession yeah, you the know, money, money versus caring, helping versus ulterior motives. And I, you know, I've said this a lot of times, you know, to new recruits coming in or, you know, to, to basically anybody that would listen, like, you know, we're really lucky. We're really fortunate that what we do actually matters. You know, we're not, there's no ulterior motive in what we're doing. Right? When people call us, they need us and they need help. And we have, we get that privilege and that opportunity to give them a hand and, and do something about it. Right. Like, when you're, uh, when you're in business for yourself or working, you're, you know, you, it's constantly more about, you know, okay, how can I expand my business? How can I make more money? You know, how can we, uh, how can we sell the customer in front of us more things? And 
you know, it's it, that gets old very quickly, right? Any relationship you're building, the network, and there's always a yeah, there's always an angle. underlying you know ulterior motive to it all. Whereas what we do, it's pure. You know, I think we're lucky that we get to be in this very noble and honorable profession that you know we're there to help people and that's it we're here to serve the community right. you know it's it's a pretty awesome thing right that was the linchpin for me too yeah about when it all comes down to it, what's the what's the economic level or what's the status level or what's the right when are we all the same yeah right everybody gets injured everyone gets hurt everyone loses loved ones like right. what is, when does it really matter what does it boil down to yeah that's just it and right? like that's the moment right None of, none, of, none of anything else matters. Well, and this is it. You know, like when it gets right down to it, you know, Julius Caesar will one day be forgotten as well, right? Like mm -hmm. it doesn't matter how big of a business person you are or how famous you are or any of that stuff. What matters is how we treat each other as human beings. You know, that, that's the relationships while we're here on this earth because right. it's going to be over soon and money doesn't matter, right? right. I could, if I wanted money, I should have stayed doing what I was doing. I was on a track to wait. You know, I was making way more than I'm making now and, you know, yeah, I'm not here for the money. I'm here because if I'm going to spend my time doing something, I want to do something that's that I can go home at the end of the day and go, well, you know, I'm, I'm proud of what I do. Yeah, and that's one thing I've learned a lot about you too and I sort of want to catch within this is that even within the service, this money's never been, you know, or role or status has never been a driver for you. It's about where do I feel I make the best fit and where do I feel you know, drawn towards, right? Like, so you, you filled a lot of roles. Yeah. Even, even within, so, so let's walk through that. So you're volunteering your first practice and then, and then, you know, what was the next phase? What was the next step? I, I just became that guy, like, you know, and I'm sure it's the same in a lot of volunteer, um, fire halls and small fire departments and stuff like that, where, you know, you got the one guy that just, he knows, he knows where everything is and, you know, He's, uh, he's at every call, he's at every practice and he's, when something needs to be done, he's volunteering. I, I, I was lucky because of, because I was self-employed, I was able to do that. You know, I literally hit every call and every practice. And as soon as something came up, my hand was up and became an instructor. And before you knew it, like three years in, they made, they made me a Lieutenant and, you know, I was kind of, you know, that's, that's the kind of guy I became was just the, the one that was always there. So the one dream really allowed you to juggle the second dream. Yeah. Yeah. It op totally opened the door for that. Right. Like mm -hmm. totally. And I didn't even know that that second dream was coming. Like it wasn't even a dream. It was like, right. Oh, this is cool. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go after this. Right. Right? Squirrel. Yeah. It was, it was totally, <laughs> a, it was totally, this is better. I'm going this way. Right. And you know, and then what happened was, um, you know, we had a deputy chief and, you know, circumstances, you know, led to him leaving the fire service and, um, you know, it's why I, th I laugh about it now because knowing what I know and how, how much it takes to become a deputy chief, I literally walked in the fire chief's office and hey, hey, you know, I'm interested in that deputy chief job. Right? <laughs> From <laughs> here, I'm a three year guy, right? Volley firefighter, yeah, you know, your guy. Was, <laughs> but you know, amazingly, I think you know he had a he we had a mutual respect for each other, and I think he understood you know sort of my background with business and and the role in the community and just who I was and the intent that it was. And there was another guy on who'd been on, you know, longer than me. And he was after the position as well. And the, the chief of the day decided, you know what, you know, rather than hiring from an outside department, you know, I'd rather hire guys and, and, and build from within. And what he did was he, um, he 
convinced council to remove the deputy chief position, turned it into two captain positions. And so I started my career, my formal, you know, full-time career as a, as a captain. Um, and I wore a lot of different hats as that captain. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's how I started my full-time career. You know, I didn't go through a group class until, you know, recently. Yeah, <laughs> we'll, we'll, get, we'll, yeah we'll get there. So you're, so you're we're, suppression captain. And so then... suppression captain and, um, you know, at the same token, you know, the fire chief dish, ditched all the prevention stuff onto us. So we were fire inspectors. Right. Um, so we're fire prevention officers and uh, suppression captains. And then we rotated. We were duty officers. And training officers. Yeah, and then we then we got involved in training. The one, the other deputy chief was sort of running training. We would help out with training nights and stuff like that. A small department, right? Like you know, anybody that's worked for a small department, I know Clayton could speak to this too. Is you wear every hat, you know, in a small department. As soon as you're a full time guy in a small department, you are cleaning toilets and you're working on RFPs and new fire stations and new fire trucks and dealing with interpersonal issues and you're dealing with everything. You got it, you know. If their tail light needs to be fixed on the fire truck, you're dealing with that. You're mm-hmm. dealing the whole gambit. So, and I, I'm very grateful for that experience because it really gave me a well-rounded idea of what we've got to do, um, you know, in our big city as well. You know, there's there's a lot of things that need to happen. But so that was the role that we played. We were, you know, we sort of had to do all these different things, right? And as duty officer, you were running as IC, like responding in the in the pickup truck and and commanding yeah. multiple vehicles. Yeah. So very quickly. You know, we got kind of thrown into that seat and, um, yeah, you, you know, you, you know, I had three nights a week, uh, at the time it started with three nights where I had to bring a pickup truck home and, you know, respond you know, directly to the scene and then, you know, stage engines and rescue truck and whatever, whatever else was coming in and run, run the call. Right. So that was kind of cool too, cause it gave me that perspective of, you know, of running, you know, running a scene. Right. And I did that for quite a few years. And then on top of that, um, all of that, <laughs> you had the work experience program. So talk to me about what that's all about. Yeah, you know, it was such a funny department in that sense. It's such a unique program. So what basically what happened is uh, the department that I worked for was at a ski resort. And we were really, really busy when the ski hills were open and really, really quiet in the summertime. And what we started doing was um, with, you know, Fire chief, before I even started the work experience program, was started up by one of our um, fire chiefs. They would bring six guys in, you know, that were, had finished fire college, that had uh, had all their EMR and driving certs, and were basically ready to be fired, hired by a f- full-time department. And they would grab six of those people. They'd let them live in the hall for the year. They'd give them a ski pass, and they would pay them for, you know, calls and practices and that sort of stuff. Uh, but they lived there for for free in the fire station for the year and they got real experience running calls right so but the the initial part of that is they show up just at the end of the the last ski season so during the slow time and then we do a huge training component with them so we basically ran a recruit program with them every year um with those six people we do like you know 12 weeks full time Mm -hmm. with them and then we slow it down once the ski slopes uh started spinning again right it's interesting because in the larger urban departments you don't have this like automatic quote-unquote downtime yeah to train your people and then and then okay the calls are going to start again and then you just ramp it back up again like, yeah it's funny right? there's there isn't the opportunity like trying to do both at the same time so what a great great opportunity there yeah it was really cool because you know worked for did that with those guys for quite a few years you know and i was more on the sidelines at the beginning the deputy chief sort of that was his thing he ran it and um you know when he became the fire chief 
um, you know, that's when I was given the opportunity to run the program. But, you know, I was always involved because I was one of the full-time guys there. And the uh, I got to meet all these different guys, and they got hired all across the country. You know, there's really not a single department in Canada. I mean, there are some, but all the big urban departments in Canada have somebody that's gone through that program. So mm-hmm. it's a funny network to have. You Even know. our current one. Yeah, there's three guys that you know went mm-hmm. through that work experience program that work for our department, right. and every neighboring department that we have. There's a few that I know, and you know, and then all the way from the east coast to the west coast to Saskatchewan to Northwest Territories, like everywhere. So it's wow. kind of a, it's funny. It was a very successful program because these guys got real experience that they could speak to when they were getting interviews and stuff like that. And we, it was a win-win because the community had six people that were ready to respond right away, mm-hmm. right? So you know, the way it would work is I would run in with the pickup truck and as a duty officer and they'd be right behind me because they were in the hall. Right. And mm-hmm. they were, so it was literally like, you know, they were able to respond immediately and mm-hmm. they ran the calls. Right. So it's a then, funny thing. And then you were given the opportunity to help develop and refine the program as well. Yeah. As soon as you get involved in any training thing, you realize that, you know, no program is ever built finished. Right. It mm-hmm. always needs more work. Right. Mm-hmm. It's a crunch time. It's just, you've, you've got to, you know, something's got to be taught. We got to teach it now. Okay, well, we need to fix this for next time. You know, right. there's always, we need to fix this for next time. And so, yeah, I was able to refine a lot of the program and make them make, put my own stamp on it and my own marks on it and stuff mm-hmm. too, right? And did you gain a lot of pride and satisfaction from watching these others? They're, obviously, with their brand new recruits every year, you're getting this experience where they're inspired. They're, yeah. They want to learn. They want to grow. And then you get to see them succeed at their goals, right? Yeah, and I think like if, if anybody's at that point in their career where they're starting to... Um, get bored with it or you know they're maybe not as engaged or as passionate as they used to be mm-hmm. my recommendation to be would be to start teaching because there's nothing like having a bunch of wide-eyed recruits in front of you that are just ready to take it all in to get you passionate about it again too mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. you know now you get to be the mentor and you get to to teach and put your mark on them right so yeah that was amazing what's even more amazing now is watching some of these guys become captains in big departments or you know apply for training positions and that sort of stuff and i you know i know i'll see the day when some of those guys are you know chiefs and stuff like that right so Mm. it's a funny thing to have been involved in their career you know at some level yeah and you also became like an adjunct instructor for the justice institute of bc yeah, so I started teaching in their fire officer program a little bit, um, and then I also got involved with teaching um, with NORD, which was a, another North Okanagan Regional District, which was uh, a, a burn building that was, you know, a few hours away, and I would go there and, you know, be a fire tech or a fire instructor. And, you know, then I got involved with, you know, Fire Prevention Officers Association of BC, the Training Officers Association. I didn't take on any formal positions there, but uh, I would go to meetings and and listen and be involved with that. And I chaired a first responder group um, for the interior of BC for a while. You know, I just, as soon as, there was no difference between what I was doing once I was full-time and when I was that first first few years on the job. Like whenever something needed to be done, I put my hand up, right? (laughs) And it's gotten me in a lot of trouble, (laughs) you know, at home with Liz, but she's been a saint, right? Yeah, yeah. And you taught EMR? For the Red Cross? Yeah. And then uh, the system team too, right? The peer support team at Big White. Yeah. yeah we And we had a unique um, system team there because uh, we ran it with Ski Patrol. You know, we kind of, they, they Ski Patrol would run 1,200 calls a year on the slopes, right? Wow. And um, 
you know, they, most of the serious incidents were actually, you know, when people perished on the slopes and, you know, so we sort of, you know, we would help do their diffusings and stuff and they would help do ours. And so we had sort of a joint program um, that I was involved with there. Another thing I was interested in asking you about was uh, forest fires. So being out west, did you have any involvement um, or training in that respect? Uh, forest fires are a huge deal out west. And, you know, Big White had gotten to the point where it was on evacuation notice a few times. You know, I ran calls when, where we had, you know, the bird dog coming in and a bunch of planes dropping bombs. And I'm, you know, in radio contact with the people in the air. And, you know, I was almost at a point of making a decision to evacuate, you know, the resort because just the way the slope and the dryness of the, mm-hmm. of the forest and where it was and the wind direction, all that stuff, you know, there was a, there was an imminent threat, you know, and, and there was a real threat out there, you know, in the Okanagan, it's, it's extremely dry, you know, there was massive, massive fires out there, um, you know, in 2003, 2008, 2009, you know, in Kelowna, they lost 300 houses, um, you know, they had the military there, you know, 1,200 people, 30,000 people evacuated. So you can't work, I don't think, in the interior of BC and not be involved in that whole um, emergency management world, or at least understand it mm-hmm. and be trained on it. And, you know, I think that's more than anything else. I just spent a lot of time getting trained on it, right? Right. And this was all in like a nine-year period. Everything we've talked about is kind of in a nine-year window, right? Yep. Which is a lot in nine years. Yeah, I guess. You know, <laughs> you know, when you start looking at all the, adding it all up. Yeah. That's a lot of coverage. Yeah, I guess. So how was the, uh, the family lifestyle at Big White? How did that fit in? Well, you know, I think that's the benefit of living in a small community. Like, um, you know, the family is very much involved with the fire, mm-hmm. the fire hall. You know, there was, a, there was an auxiliary, uh, ladies auxiliary, and Liz was involved in that. And the kids, you know they would come to the fire station all the time, mm. you know, we'd have regular dinners with all the families and stuff like that. And but they, uh, they had ski days with, with written into their school program. Didn't they? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah they, they had a need. How did that work? <laughs> yeah. The, the kids would, let me put it to you this way. At lunchtime, that big way, you would put your skis on the kids mm. and you would hit the kicker. That's, that's what you would do. You would hit a rail or you would hit a kicker for your lunch hour. That's, just how it rolled. And then, yeah, Thursday afternoons was, you know, hit the slopes day, right? For the day with your, with your class yeah. <laughs> every week. <Yeah. laughs> so they worked a little bit harder in school, you know, right. when they were in class, but they got a lot of ski time. Yeah, Amazing. Went. Amazing. So as much as you loved Big White and your work there, you decided to move to the GTA. Yeah. Back home again or back, you know, to your previous city. Yeah. Right? I think it's just a, it's a family decision more than anything. Right? Yeah. As a training officer, uh, where your cousin Dave worked. That's right. Worked, yeah. yeah. And this is where you and I met. That's right. Yeah. And um, I remember you telling me that uh, early on, David said to you, oh, yeah, this guy in training, like you and him will really hit it off. You'll get along really well. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he was right. Right? He was right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he was right. Uh, so how was your experience different in a larger urban department uh, versus working uh, for Big White? Yeah, it's interesting. I think there's pros and cons to both, right? You know, I think, um, you know, what I liked, certainly liked about the smaller departments, when you wanted to get something done, it got done. You know, there wasn't, it didn't take any time. You had a credit card and you just, you, you bought it or you, you know, you just made it happen, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, in a big urban department, there's, you're a small cog in a big wheel so, or in a big ship. So it takes a long time, you 
know, to get things to happen and turn the ship. So, you know, that, that for me was, is challenging and, and a little bit difficult, but you know, at the same token, um, you know, there's a lot more going on in our department, you know, there's, there's opportunities to get involved in, in a lot of different things and, um, whether it be, you know, with the association or outside of work, you know, in hockey and, you know, those sorts of things, or, you know, sitting on committees or, or whatever, right? Like there's a lot of opportunity to get involved, you know, in a bigger level, I think too, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there was, there was, yeah, there was no shortage of work and portfolios to cover for us, right? You're, you're pretty understaffed and overwhelmed and, yeah, uh, but we, I think we all, uh, hit it off and bonded and put our heads down and we all had great work ethics. So we got a lot of stuff done, but what were you tasked with? What were, what did you cover while you were in there? Um, my main task and training was, um, to try and build an officer development program. And, um, that really, the mandate right from the get go was to do it as an e-learning thing. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not a huge computer. I, I own an internet cafe. It doesn't mean I knew how the computers work. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, so I, you know, for me, it was a huge learning curve to try and, you know, figure out the world of e-learning. And I think I certainly, I know that's where we're going, you know, just logistically, you can't give training to 450 people easily, you know, if you're going to do it face to face. So, you know, and that, and that then we're a small department in that sense, like there's departments that are way bigger than us. So, you know, I've sort of felt more than anything, I was sort of a <clears throat> pioneer on this, this new way of, of doing training and how to make it engaging and interactive and interesting, mm -hmm. you know, and then, you know, under the, under the realm of officer development. So that was really my main sort of, uh, pro, you know, project while I was in there, but you know, in training, you got to do everything. We were spending a lot of plates, like you were involved in live fire and every recruit class that came up, you were, you know, we're all jumping in on different topics and that's it trying to become experts overnight <laughs> yeah yeah or you know like you know, you come to me and say hey can you teach the elevator program next year yeah, that's right yeah. <laughs> okay i guess yeah <laughs> you get like you head back at you know, get back up to speed on this right? yeah like because i was just tasked with building it cold right so here you go was, yeah that, that, that was just the nature of where we were yeah and i think you know there's a I think what people need to recognize about training is that more than anything that there are expectations coming from from both sides, from, from the management side and from, you know, the grassroots, you know, guys on the floor, boots on the ground side. And it's really hard to manage those expectations of both because, you know, certainly there's, there, you know, there's a lot of contrast between those, those two expectations, you know, management's got the responsibility of being fiscally responsible, you know, and doing things with limited resources and yet the guys on the floor want every resource thrown at everything. Right. And, mm -hmm. you know, more than anything, you're just, trying to explain both the one side to the other side, yeah. right? You're, you're a real middleman when it comes into training, you know, driving timelines, right? Like, cause they, you know, maybe if it's slower, you're trying to drive things faster with upstairs and trying to explain that it's a longer play with the floor. And yeah, we, and we really took the, the relationships and this, this just speaks to who we are too, right? Like the relationships with training in the floor and with training and, administration like that that was an important yeah and training and recruits and training right? and recruits right yeah you know i think you, this is really it's all that matters you know when it gets right down to it you know it's were you a good person when you were on this earth right you right. know and you know you, those relationships are key to getting anything done or mm. to you know understanding what needs to be done properly right mm. you know if people are willing to talk to you and explain things to you 
and they haven't written you off, then you'll then you'll be, a, be able to be more effective when you're building programs and stuff like that. Right. So yeah, so we definitely poured, you know, time and energy into what mattered, which was that. Yeah. Which then made the end result easier. Yeah. And it's a, you know, it was certainly a sacrifice more than anything else. You know, hours of work really didn't play into this. You know, you were always on when you're in training. You're always working at night. You're working weekends. You're always thinking. You're always taking phone calls. Yep, jotting down notes or doing research mm-hmm. or doing reading. And, you know, I wouldn't change anything. You know, I'm so glad I did. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm so glad I did that. And I'm so, I was very involved with training at Big White too. And, you know, for me, you know, being training for me was an opportunity for me to just learn things better. I mean, really it's self-serving you know I just wanted to be better in my job I don't think I don't think I've ever felt you know 100% confident in what I do you know I think mm-hmm. maybe confident competent you know there's always something more to learn right I yeah mean, and you were incredibly uh, um, strong resource to help again refine and develop the recruit program right and here's an opportunity so I, I remember I remember distinctly the very first recruit class that you were going to be involved with with us, yeah, um, and you spend a day or two days basically polishing their rigs with a toothbrush. <laughs> like I don't think they've ever been cleaner, right? Um, just because it mattered that much to you, right? The, their first impressions, there you, and they believe you started the quote of the day and the tip of the day yeah. on the board every day, and we all jumped on that because that was an amazing idea. So. You really brought a, um, a high level of um, uh, professionalism and um, recruits inspiration. Are, recruits are easy, right? They'll rise to your expectations, right? right? You know, you set, the, you set the line, you know, and if your line's low, well, they're going to see that and they're just going to go low, right? If mm-hmm. your line's high, they're going to, they're happy to, to hit that high line as well mm-hmm. and work hard, right? So, In a respectable so, line. Yeah, right. Yeah. And I think that, you know, that's where it came, you know, that the rigs just needed to be they needed to think when they walked in the door that this is how we kept them. Right. Right. And then they, or would, should keep them. Yeah. And they, and then they would, right. right. You know, I think we've got to give them credit and, and believe in them when they walk in the door, they've worked hard to get where they are. Mm-hmm. And you know, if they see that they're going to, they'll step up mm-hmm. and they always do. So I've heard from a number of recruits cause we, you know, we'd always ask for feedback. I mean, I've emailed classes six months to a year later and said, Hey, looking back, you know, is there stuff that you thought was 100% useful? Is there stuff that you think we could get rid of? Um, one of the things that comes up, like, because we'd always get them to do evaluations, and then um, and hopefully they were anonymous. We tried to make them as anonymous as possible about the level of um, discipline, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we experienced that, you and I, where there were others that maybe were um, harsh on the one end of the spectrum. Right. And then you could be extremely easy on the other end of the spectrum. And we were trying to always, each of us had our own personality, our own way of trying to find that middle ground. Right. Yeah. Um, and we wanted to be personable and welcoming and, and, um, not force them down a road they didn't need to be down, but we wanted to ask them to step up too. So you talk to me a bit about that. Like, how do you manage that? What do you think the line is? Well, I think as an instructor and a, a training officer, you, You've got to be very careful with your own ego, you know, and, and if you're up there, you know, to belittle people and yell at people just so that you can feel better about yourself, well, then you're probably not in the right position. And I think, um, you know, that being said, it doesn't mean you don't have to be easy on people. You can be hard and work people hard and get recruits, you know, set high expectations for them. 
but why are you doing it? You know, and one of my main tenets is whenever we're exploring a subject, whatever that subject is, whether, you know, it's fire behavior, high rise firefighting or elevator, whatever it is, the classroom should be subject centered and not necessarily, you know, teacher centered or student centered. It should be subject centered. And I always felt that, you know, while I might know something about a subject, I'll guarantee there was another gold nugget or two of information in that room with the experience of the people that were in front of me that needed to be brought out. And so you need to create an environment that's comfortable about exploring a subject so that those things can come out. And I can definitely say that I've learned just as much from recruits as they have from me. You know, they, a lot of these people come in here with, you know, 10 years on as a captain in a small department already, you know what right, I mean? Like right. they're not, some of them certainly are inexperienced, but there's a lot of experience in that room as well. So if you create an environment that's, you know, toxic and belittling and, you know, really tough, they're not going to bother asking questions and they're not going to, they're just going to get through it rather mm-hmm. than get into it. Enjoy it, right? Yeah. We've heard about classes that couldn't wait for recruit class to end. Yeah. And then we, we also have also experienced while we were there classes that never wanted it to end. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's, that for me was always the ultimate goal, mm-hmm. you know, like that this was such an empowering and powerful experience, you know, and they really got into the subject, you know, that, yeah, they didn't want to stop. Mm-hmm. And, and more than anything, you know, if they can leave recruit class with a desire to learn and learn more and to realize just how little they actually know, you know, then that's, then we've done our job. Right. And the confidence in what they do now know. Yeah. The balance of those two things. Yeah. When I say that, I mean sort of, you know, that the more they know, the more they realize how much they don't right. know. Right. I think that, uh, that experience in the room is a good place to, to then talk about, you know, you decided after being in training, uh, to make the jump to the trucks. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, 201 now you're going to be a recruit. So now if we, if we pause now and we reflect on everything we just discussed yeah. and everything you've done, right? So now you decide to be a recruit. Yeah, so how did you, and then I think this is where you respected of them that there's value in, in what they do know, because you sitting in the room would be one of those people that could speak to or stand up and teach yeah. subjects that were being taught to you. Yeah. So we need to recognize that people aren't Yeah, I had like, to listen not, to some of my own programs that I created. Yeah, that's right. So they're, they're not blank <laughs> slates, right? Right. But, but I think the key here is, is that with everything that you had done and did know and could do, you know, I seeing call, like calls, mm-hmm. right, managing trucks. Uh, so now you're recruiting a class. How did you decide to approach that? Surrounded by oh, people that were maybe different levels of experience than you. Because I came from an outside department, you know, I had to learn that specific way of doing it within the new department that I'm in. And, uh, you know, for me, I needed to, you know, the way I looked at it was just simply, this is just an opportunity, right? You know, the fact that I've got to go through a group class because administration wants me to go through it. This is an awesome opportunity for me to go back to basics. Because what happens in your career, I think, is when you start getting the more I think you move up and the more you get into things, the, the, the further away from the basics sometimes you get, mm-hmm. you know, if case in point was the other day, you know, as I was bugging Clayton, you know, about, uh, you know, tagging hydrants. I'm like, Hey, you know, I haven't tagged a hydrant in a long time. Let's, let's go out and hit some hydrants. Right. And we didn't get the opportunity. We had to do some other, we had to do some ice rescue stuff. And, 
you know, sure enough, yesterday I had to tag a hydrant and I messed up. I did, you know, like yeah. the four inch actually, the coupling blew on the thing and, you know, I had to shut the thing down. And because I, you know, I didn't, uh, I didn't bother to put the, the gate on the other side, you know, I had to release the pressure. You know, I it totally messed it up. I'm just like, geez, you know, back to basics. Right. Right. You can't drill them enough. That's the bottom line. And for me, a recruit class was that. It was an opportunity to go back to, Throwing ladders, pulling hose, you know, searching. Again, know? to speak to your personality, someone else could have been there and thought, this is a hoop to jump through. Yeah. I've written a lot of this program. You know, be on their phone, rolling their eyes, falling asleep, just going through the motions and getting it done so you can get on the floor and get to where you actually want to be. Yeah. And this wasn't you. It's not who you are. And you're and you and I, I believe I remember you talking about how you were perceived by the recruits and your relationships with them, getting back to relationships again was very important. Yeah. You didn't want to be seen, treated, known as any different yeah. than them. Yeah. yeah. Because that experience was important, right? And your respect for them and their respect for you. And well, that's it. Yeah. It would have affected everything, right? You could have taken this a completely different way. Yeah. You know what? And man, we had a blast. You know, it was a great. It was a great group of people. You know, we got really lucky with who we had in the class. I mean, but every class is like that. That's right. The, that's, that's the honest truth, right? And they all have their uh, their own personalities, really. It's, that was really striking to me. Yeah. That every group of people had their own. Yeah. There's as a much few, as they were the same, they were very different. And there were a few characters in that class that, you know, <laughs> I knew. Number one, there were the characters in the class, but then there was the, the a few people in that class that I knew if we were if we were learning this, this is the guy I want to stand beside while we're doing it because this is the guy I'm going to learn from too, right? right. You know, they're yeah. in there, right? And so we, and this goes back to what we were talking about. You know, as a training person or as an instructor, you can't. You know, we're in a day and an age now where information is available to everybody, and you can't um, close the door to the information that's available to you in the room about a subject. You got to make it subject centered. You can't sit there and you know preach the textbook and think that you know everything there is to know about a subject because mm. it goes back to the more you know the more you realize how much you don't know right right, right. and now you're uh, you've mentioned uh jeff a few times and you're following on his his episode which uh which was great i learned so much about him yeah um so one thing i failed to bring up with uh jeff in his episode uh he made a comment to me shortly after i had been part of teaching the r2mr program um, and, uh, we ran, uh, he, and he was in the class and we ran into each other and, and he said, Hey, have you heard about our new kitchen table? Right. And I think it was that hose deployment training or something. He's like, have you heard about our new kitchen table? And I said, I thought he meant an actual table because 201's got a real beauty. Right. So I figured, yeah. Oh, station two must, you know, it's a tech rescue station. They must've built something, you know, pretty crazy. Right. So I wanted to hear about it. Um, but he, what he meant was that the crew had decided to treat their discussions around the kitchen table differently, right? Maybe with more consideration, uh, for others, brotherhood is the overarching goal, right? So you've mentioned to me that brotherhood's built mostly, uh, outside the station. Um, but it's obviously built around the kitchen table as well. So just talk to me about brotherhood and what that means to you. Well, I go back to that first practice. I think, you know, what impressed me the most was just the camaraderie of the, of the fire station and the firehouse. And, uh, we certainly have that in our station. You know, it's, we, we have a good time when we're at work and, you know, we rib each other and, you know, there's lots of fun, you know, but we take it seriously and we work hard and we train hard and, you know, we're, we're always striving to be better every shift, you know, but brotherhood specifically, you know, when I think about brotherhood and I, you know, I often hear the comment, okay, is, you know, is that, 
is is the brotherhood leaving us now with the 24 hour shift or, and I think you've mentioned this on your podcast there's a waning you know and I kind of have a different attitude about that I think brotherhood is what you make it you think yeah. it's a choice and when I say brotherhood it. I mean brothers and I don't want to exclude our sisters too right oh, it's brother, brotherhood yeah, and sisterhood yeah. and or I call it you know, we call it also family the fire service like however you want to yeah. label it yeah and uh you know, I think it's really it's really about what you make it. And you're going to make it outside of the station more than you are inside of the station. Certainly, you know, you're there for your however many days a month or whatever your shift schedule is. But, you know, it's, it's what you do on your off time, I think, that really allows you to become engaged and passionate about the job. And, it, and that's what's infectious. And for me, that's where the real brotherhood is, is when you start experiencing things with people from other departments or people within your own department in an informal setting. Mm. You know, I often find that I, I often find that, um, some of the best experience I've had is, you know, when I'm doing charity work outside with, you know, within the department or when I'm, you know, playing hockey with, you know, group of people or, you know, going on canoe trips or whatever it is. Starting a band, you know, that's it, man. Avocado bed sheets. Um, yeah, that's it. That's it, right? Like brotherhood is, it is, it's up to you to make it, you know, and especially now in this day and age of social media and internet and all these distractions and everything, it takes effort to get together face to face in an informal setting, but that's really where you know people, right? And that's where really where you get to, you know, build some bonds and build some trust and have some understanding and stuff like that. And I, you know, I wrote in my notes for you, um, you know, we had an incredible individual at a big white. Um, come join the fire department. It was an ex NHLer, Richard Matvichuk, who played 14 years, you know, in the NHL, had a couple of Stanley Cup rings, and he came to our department to join as a as a rookie firefighter. Right? You know, he's a big dude, but he's, uh, you know, I remember sitting down having a couple of beers with him one day. I'm like, you know, what makes you? You're a millionaire. What's you the know? deal, man? You know, what, are you do- <laughs> what are you doing? Right? right. He's like, you know, more than anything else. Um, now that I'm not in the NHL as a player, and he's a coach now, but now that I'm not in the NHL as a player, I miss the camaraderie and I miss the brotherhood. I miss that, you know. I miss being around, you know, the guys and stuff like that. And and this is the first time I've experienced that again in my outside life, you know. And and you know that speaks volumes about just how cool and 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 privileged we are. To how be, strong a draw it is. Yeah, you know we get to not only do we get to do something that's real and serves a real purpose and allows us to serve our communities, we get to have a damn good time doing it. Right. Yeah. Like, you know, that's really what it is, but it's up to you to make that, you know, like you can show up for your shift and then, and then not, you know, talk to any of the people on your crew, you know, outside of work. And, and I don't mean to judge because I'm some, some people just have, uh, you know, a life that requires them to do that. Maybe they're taking care of somebody outside of work or, whatever and they can't you know get together with everybody i'm not saying that you have to do this um you know we're all we all have our own circumstances you know around what we're doing but for me i find that getting involved extracurricularly you know in the fire department has has led to a deeper engagement and passion within my own work right um so the extracurricular stuff the charity work you mentioned a firefighter's ball and a bike ride and so how, what what was your involvement with those types of uh, programs yeah um well at west i was able to get involved in just about every charity once again you know when i was a volunteer i was self-employed i was able to do everything and then even once i became full-time you know i started uh 
I started working on, you know, some charity stuff. The fireman's ball for me was sort of the big one. You know, I ran that for three years and we had a huge ball and, you know, it was a tuxedo kind of affair. And, you know, it was a nice way to get, you know, have my bride out on a nice night out where she can get dressed up. And, you know, yeah. she loved it. And, the, the you know, everyone loved just getting together and sort of that atmosphere. And we raised money for charity. And, you know, that was sort of an awesome experience. And, you know, and then, you know, a bike ride, you know, it was a little small bike ride. It was from BC to Ontario. Um, you know, but that was just sort of a personal goal, you know, like I wanted to ride a bicycle across, you know, across Canada. And so we organized a group of people to do this. And, um, you know, we raised a whole bunch of money for the Children's Wish Foundation in doing so. And, you know, unfortunately, day two of the ride, my knee blew out and I didn't oh. make the ride. So after a year of working towards this goal, you know, wow. I didn't actually finish it. But my point is, is that, you know, this was something I wanted to do more than anything else. And a couple other guys, and we started talking about it. So we just made it happen, you know. So I think if there isn't extracurricular activities out there that are formal, you know, for you to join in as a follower, then be a leader and create something, right? Right. You know, like Dave and I now, you know, our next our next big thing here is, um, you know, we're gonna we're gonna join a little race, you know, in a tuk tuk, and we're a, a little race, yeah, yeah. So we're gonna start at the <laughs> bottom end of India and go to the north end. It's a twenty five hundred kilometer race right. for in, charity again. In a yeah, in a tuk tuk that goes. In a tuk tuk, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they break down. They go thirty five <laughs> kilometers an hour in yeah. India, <laughs> right? But we're doing what could go wrong. You know, we've we've yeah. we've talked to the fire chief. We're gonna do it for you know we're gonna do it for charity, uh, right. you know, sort of as a as a thing. You know, as firefighters doing this, right? So, Amazing. you know, so once again, this is just another way of us sort of being you know doing something we want to do, you know, but in the in the same breadth and stroke, you know increasing our own engagement in what we, you know, in the fire service, you know, doing it for the fire service as a charity yeah. thing, right? Like, I, I spoke to someone this week, a fellow firefighter, about the spectrum of passion for the job. Mm -hmm. And um, being with, involved with all these things, many can label, you know, us as caring too much about the job, right? Quote, unquote. So I offered this perspective. I hadn't really thought about it before, but it, what's actually happening there is that they are deciding in their own mind uh, that their level of caring is what is normal, mm. right? And everything above and below that is abnormal, right? So it allows them to feel like their caring is the right amount. Well, and I think this is where we all need to be careful. You know, we, we, we have, you have your own idea and I have my own idea and they have their own idea of what, what level of involvement should be there? You know, how much, how much should you drill? How many courses should you take? Mm -hmm. You know, what should you do in your outside time? And this is where I said I don't want to judge because, you know, everyone's got their own circumstances. And I think more than anything else, you know, we shouldn't um, we shouldn't belittle people for, you know, getting right into the job. And we shouldn't belittle people for the inability to do so, right? Mm -hmm. You know, maybe they have personal circumstances that we don't understand. Mm -hmm. You know, so you want to be very careful when you're when you're throwing that that judgment around about you know, and calling people out for, you know, being too passionate or not being passionate enough. I mm -hmm. think, you know, it's, um, you know, that's a, that's a line you want to be careful about sure. crossing, right? I think it's common to look at numbers though, right? Because if people think that people that care, the people that care too much, quote unquote, are a small number of people yeah. and the people that don't care enough or at all are a small number of people. So the majority of people that you may see yourself surrounded with, well, well the majority feels this way. So that must be the right amount. And I guess yeah. what I'm saying is that numbers don't necessarily dictate what the ideal is, correct? Like, yeah. just because the masses believe something doesn't mean that that's the right way to believe. Right. 
I agree. You know, you, you know, can't, it's not a cause effect thing. I think it's important, you know, more than anything else. And if, if I had advice for new people, it would simply be just be authentic to yourself. You know, and if you want to get into it and you want to go, right. you know, gangbusters and take all kinds of courses and go to FDIC and learn everything you can go for it, man. You know what? I'd, I'd be proud to have you on my crew, mm-hmm. you know, but you know, if you've got circumstances that don't allow you to, to do that, then, you know, I get it. Right. You know, but when you're on shift, work hard. Right. Yeah. I think what I'm trying to draw out too is from what you've been saying is that, um, people often feel that, or what I'm getting from it is people often feel that if you're carrying too much, you're putting yourself into the job too often in too many different ways when you should find a better place to put that time and energy. And I, and when I'm, when I hear you speak about what you've been involved with and why you actually get so much back yeah that it's not this caring too much isn't an outward pouring of energy and you never get anything back no no the more you poured yourself into it the more you got out of it which wasn't your intention but that's just what happens so i think people are missing missing an opportunity there yeah yeah i think so you know i think though you know guys like us need to be careful too about you know saying that everyone should do what we do too right right you know like yeah, I don't think that's... I don't well, there's think, people that go above and beyond what we do, too. There's, well, exactly. There's all oh, sorts yeah, of levels. Like, like, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. But I just want to touch on that, that, that you get back a lot. Yeah, I do. Yeah. You know, because, you know, these are important things to me. And, you know, I get a lot, you know, out of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. So what would you say is most emblematic of brotherhood to you? You mentioned marching. Can you talk to me about that and what that brought out in your mind? Yeah, you know, I think I wrote in the notes to you about um, the experience, you know, and Jordan Paris is the best guy to talk to about this, right? He understands this better than anybody or anybody that's that serves on our honor God. And, um, you know, I can remember distinctly going to the line of duty death funeral at West and it was in a small town. It was a neighboring department. One of the neighboring captains, you know, had died, you know, in a fire. And um, I was amazed, you know, it was the first time marching at, at one of these things. And I would recommend anybody do this in their career is to attend a line of duty death funeral in another department. Um, you know, the buses that were coming in from all over, you know, with, with guys and then lining up with, you know, 1,400 people you know, on the streets of this small town and then marching through that town um, quietly, you know, and all you heard was the stomping of the feet and nobody was saying anything. It was a very solemn kind of moment and the, and the people of the town were lining, you know, this, the sides of the roads and you kind of filtered into this arena for the, for the service and stuff. And, you know, that for me just made me realize, you know, like I'm really part of something way bigger than the self and then me, you know, this is, you know, it's, it, this is brotherhood right here. This is brotherhood, sisterhood, you know, like we're here for each other. We're here for each other's families and, mm-hmm. you know, and something like that really, really, um, struck home for me and resonated with me. And, mm-hmm. and then we're, we're carrying, tra- you know, and this is where we're carrying traditions forward, right. And honoring those that came before us. As yeah. well as the person that were there for that day. Absolutely. Or people that were yeah. there for that day. And I, and I feel that, you know, I've tried to make it a point to get out and, and march, 
you know, with her honor guard once in a while, you know, at Remembrance Day, for, you know, or, or wherever. And, um, you know, whenever I do, I, I feel that, right? I feel that, you know, like I'm carrying a torch forward, you know, that those that came before us, you know, that had did, and I'm honoring the traditions of the fire service. And, mm-hmm. and I always find, you know, hanging out with those guys, you know, you, you learn more about the tradition and, and, um, and the history. And I think that's really important too, is that you get an idea of, you know, what it really means, you know, intergeneration, generationally, mm-hmm. right. Rather than just, you know, our speck of time in the fire service, really, right. Our department's been around a lot longer than than we ever will, you know. Right. So do the best you can with the time that you're there yeah. to make it a bit better. So as much as we're honoring these traditions and carrying them forward and passing it on, do you see any, and as much as we're doing thing, things right because of that and in our own way, uh, do you see any issues that are necessarily our generation's challenge to take up and to improve for the next generation? Oh, you know, like, because the fire service is, you know, 150 years of <laughs> tradition unimpeded by progress, there's a million things that we could look at and say, okay, we need to get better at this and this and this, you know, but I think if we can just be committed to progress and committed to becoming better and committed to learning, um, you know, we'll eventually get there. And I don't know that, I, you know, I don't know that we're specifically, our generation is dropping the ball, you know, any less than any other generation before mm-hmm. us, you know, and I think that any, anybody who's been around, you know, for 30 years probably feels that the new guy doesn't get it. And then that new guy, when he gets up to 30 years, will probably feel that the new guy behind him doesn't get right. it. You know, it's just, <laughs> that's just the cycle of life. Right, and, right. you know, that's where you just got to respect your senior guy. Cause maybe there's a few things you can learn from that person. hundred percent. Right? Yeah. Um, if you could give advice, I've been asking, I think everybody, this question, I think it's, Everyone's had a different answer, so it's good to good to throw it out there. If you, if you could give advice to yourself at each of the stages of your career, so when you're about to make the jump to be a volley, as a volley, as a deputy, as a training officer, as a, um, you know, now as a firefighter, is there any specific advice you'd give to yourself if you could go back and just whisper something in your ear yeah. at each point? It can be different, different advice. Well, for each just point. to clarify, I was never a deputy. Just yeah, <laughs> you well, said that, you know. yeah. Uh, well, the deputy job was split into two captains jobs. So yeah, we're, um, we're splitting hairs here. It was the role of a deputy, no, I know, but, but yeah, yeah. You know, um, I think, yeah, it's really hard to say, you know, I think given who I am and at the time, you know, I was happy to do things the way I did. Uh, I think maybe I would, um, maybe judge a little bit less, you know, especially earlier on in my career, I found myself, you know, maybe armchair quarterbacking things a little bit more. And, you know, as you, as you learn more, you realize, um, you know, you shouldn't do that. You know, we, we often try to make this job black and white. It's not, it's gray. Everything about it is gray. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what we get paid to do is, is to work in the gray zone. So, you know, there's always more than one way to skin a cat and there's always another way of doing something and, you know, your way may, may not necessarily be the best way, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think I would just say be open-minded, you know, to new thoughts and to, to thoughts that contradict your opinions, you know? Yeah. I, I find that, you know, I, I, I'm open now way more than I used to be to that sort of thinking and it's helping me out a lot better. I wish I'd sort of learned that one a little bit.
earlier, you know, and, and you know, you can never drill the basics too much. Mm. You know, here I am 14 years in and I munged up a hydrant the other day. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I went halfway to a call. Well, I don't think it happened. I went almost all the way to a call without the lights on. <laughs> right. <laughs> right, 20 years in. <laughs> And I'm dropping the ball, <laughs> right? Sirens making a lot of noise, making the right moves, being patient. You know, why is this? Why are people not moving? <laughs> right. Oh yeah, because those little flashes on the top they matter, right? Right. We're not we're not perfect. Yeah. So, but as much as we, you know, again, not judging is is crucial. But if you hadn't, there's been some key moments where if you hadn't stood up, put your hand up, fought the fought the fight, you know, said what needed to be said, that maybe things wouldn't have been done. Right. So there's, is it more of you, you've, you know, you're, are you picking your battles smarter? Is that what it is? I think it is. I think that's what it is. I think in playing a longer play as opposed to expecting it to happen overnight. Yeah. I think that's it. I think you start realizing that, um, you know, if you pick every battle, you know, you're, you're just going to get, you're going to lose influence. People are going to stop listening to you. Right. So mm -hmm. you need to, yeah, you need to, yeah, we say we say to rookies all the time, you know, like, you know, listen and keep your mouth shut, right? But you know, I think I think everybody could stand for that, you right? Know? <laughs> everybody, everybody could, right? Like, there's always three sides to a story. There's you know one side, the other side, and then the real story, <laughs> right? So you know, just be open, be open that way, and mm. you know, yeah, I, I don't know what else to say about it. Mm. And lastly, let's uh, let's leave on. Do you have any uh, work habits that you feel you do that might be useful to another firefighter? One I heard recently, which made me think about this, is a firefighter recently told me that they keep a piece of paper when they're driving in the back of their back of their pants, and mm. and that whatever happens through the day, calls, things that go wrong in the truck, things that are missing, they make their own list. Yep. So that at the end of the shift, yeah. the next driver comes in, they just hand the paper to them, so they don't have to remember everything went wrong so and this was passed on to them from another fellow firefighter so i was wondering for you is there anything like that like you feel like you do it's not necessarily the right thing to do and everyone needs to do it but do you think this is this might be helpful is there anything like that i think the biggest thing um you know the ha biggest habit i've developed is always research something yourself you know we often hear about Oh, you know, this tactic is better than that tactic or this way of doing something is better than that way. Or, you know, this standard says this, you know, but well, until you open that standard and actually read that standard yourself, you're getting that information, you know, second, third, fourth, fifth hand, um, you know, and it's, I have often found that by digging into it myself, you get to know the real answer. So I think more than anything is read and research, you know, like learn, educate yourself, mm -hmm. you know, I think that's, and keep that going, you know, like I'm still taking courses all the time. I'm still, you know, where I've got a huge library at home of fire books that, you know, I'm often flipping through and reading and, and I'm using social media to, to learn more. And, and, you know, the, there's more than one way to do it. And the textbook isn't always right. Right. You know, and you've had the opportunity to, to write a few articles. Yeah. So I think that, that need to research and know a subject not only if you're teaching it is one thing in a classroom and those you know small group of people are hearing it but when you're writing an article and everyone's gonna be reading it how was that experience yeah i think um you know i, I start I, I started doing the writing because i wanted to work on my writing and i wanted to um i want exactly wanted to do exactly that i wanted to kind of get into 
understanding a few things at a deeper level. And so it, by writing about it, you know, formally like that, it really forces you to be able to back up what you're saying in, in that article. So um, it causes you to research at a very deep level and really get to the nuts and bolts of a, mm-hmm. of a subject, right? So, you know, my stuff has mainly had to do with instructing and teaching techniques and e-learning. But, um, you know, and that was something that, you know, I've spent a lot of time learning about. But, you know, by doing so, it made me a much better instructor, you know, a much more effective instructor, you know, mm-hmm. given the, the fact that face-to-face time is so precious, you know, that we, you know, we can't really waste a lot of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's with, you know, being someone that seems to always have something on the horizon, what's on the horizon for you? Well, right now, um, you know, having joined the TR team and and not, not knowing much about TRs, uh, you know, listening to my, my, my fellow guys on the, on the team and learning from them, um, you know, trying to get good at that. And, um, you know, so for me right now, that's sort of my, my main focus at the moment is to, you know, dive into that technical rescue world, right? Mm-hmm. Any more writing in the future? Or are you going to stay in the instruction world? Yeah, you know, I'm, yeah, I'm not sure really where I'm going to go with that. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, you know, occasionally it pops into my head and then I want to do that. But, you know, right now I just need to focus again on the basics and focus on being a good backstep, you know, firefighter and mm-hmm. good member of the TR team and, and a contributor that way. So, you know, it's hard to say where you're going to be. You know, I never would have thought I'd be a firefighter. So I don't know if I'm going to be back in a training wall again. <laughs> Who knows? Don't right? pigeonhole yourself, right? Yeah. You just keep your doors open. You know, I think that's it. And your mind open, yeah. 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 Well, thanks for coming to do this. My pleasure. I'm grateful to be here. Awesome. All right. Take care. Okay. Cheers. See you.